Tēnā koutou katoa and hello everybody. Welcome to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. My name is Ben Adelberg and I'm coming to you from Tamaki Makoro, Auckland. And g'day, I'm Emma Strutt and I'm currently coming to you from Yugambeh country in Queensland. And before we dive into our conversation today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. The Lento Intervention is an Australasian educational and advocacy platform dedicated to raising awareness about the current climate and health crisis. And on this podcast, we invite guests to chat about topics that will inspire you to take action to improve your own health and the health of the planet. So please subscribe to and share this podcast and visit our website for the full show notes. And don't forget to buy us a coffee if you'd like to support our work. And here we are, episode number four, and uh, we are super lucky to have our following guest. So a lot of our listeners will be familiar with, uh, I think it was released in August last year, which was the IPCC Climate Change 2021 report, which is predominantly the physical science basis. We covered a little bit about, um, I guess, the, the more direct impact in Australia and New Zealand. Now, just this week, hot off the press, although by the time our listeners get to this, we'll be a little, a few weeks delayed, um, but the IPCC Working Group 2's report on impacts, adaptation and vulnerability has just been released, and we are so delighted to have one of the co-authors on the show with us today. Yes, we are incredibly fortunate to have Professor Greta Petzl joining us today on the podcast. Um, Professor Petzl is Director at the Centre of Marine Socioecology, with, which is in partnership with the University of Tasmania and is also an ARC Future Fellow. Greta is an absolute specialist in climate change ecology and an IPCC lead author, so very timely interview given that publication recently. Lots to talk about today, so let's jump straight in. Greta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, zooming in from Nibelina Lutruita or Tasmania, um, where the Muanina people have cared for land, sea and country for many, many thousands of, of years. And I think we'll probably touch on that theme a little bit down the line because I think that's quite important. But Greta, let's first start it off a little bit about yourself. Super, super busy woman. Um, incredible. And when we look at a lot of projects that you're involved in, I know you had a very stressful last few weeks getting that report out. But tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, what you do. Um, and then I'd love to d uh, dive a little bit into some of the projects that you're involved in, like Curious Climate, Future Seas and RedMap. All fascinating. So, yeah, your journal. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm a marine ecologist by trade. So um, I, when I was growing up as a kid, I was pretty fascinated with, you know, plants and animals and how and why they did the things that they do. But it didn't actually occur to me that you could be a scientist. We didn't know any university-educated people. I didn't know that was a career option for me. And then as I got um, older, I worked, you know, worked for a couple of years and then decided to Go, on uni and go to uni and do a science degree and ended up fishing and diving and loving it. And yes, it worked firstly on, on squids and cuttlefish and octopus and looking at how they grew and where they lived and their movement and migrations and just really fascinated with the underwater world. And, you know, I used to think of it as being an ecological detective, sort of figuring out how things worked under there and what all the connections were, but started seeing 
lots of changes in the marine environment in the early 2000s and started wondering what was going on, why things were changing and, and gradually got very interested in, in climate change. And now, as you know, I do a little bit less work in the field, fishing and diving, and a little bit less um, laboratory work, looking at, at animals and what makes them tick, but uh, a lot more work on the human system. So I do look at impacts of, of climate change at a local scale here in Tasmania, but also at the, at the global scale, and then looking at how our human system, so our fisheries and aquaculture and conservation, how all those things might need to change and adapt to climate change so that we can make the most of, of the situation that we're in. And as Ben said, you've been involved in a number of projects that are helping bridge that gap between the experts and the wider population. Um, and, you know, effective communication is so important for spreading that message beyond the scientific community. So tell us about those projects. Yeah, well, I've always been interested in science communication and engagement. And I guess primarily because as a as a, as a kid, you know, I just, it just never really occurred to me that I could be a scientist. And so part of what I want to do is try and, you know, engage people uh, in the idea that anyone can be a scientist and that there's still a huge amount about our world that we don't understand. And that was even before climate change, you know, became the, the issue that it is today. But I've, I've always felt that scientists have a responsibility to try and communicate what we do and why it's important. And, you know, a lot of the work that we do is with public money. So I kind of want to make sure that we're telling people what happens with it and why it's important. And, uh, a lot of the work that I do now is in that engagement and communication space. And we, we actually do research on that too. It's not only a performative um, exercise that's valuable in, in and of itself, of course, but we actually engage with social scientists and psychologists and evaluate and research the, the methods that we're using so that we can learn more and we can get better um, at doing this. I think that there's a very big gap in society in terms of understanding how the scientific process works and we have some very very big decisions as a as a, as a society at all levels to to make over the next coming decades so it's critical that people actually understand what's going on and 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 why so tell us a little bit about those projects. So Curious Climate, what is it about? Yeah, Curious Climate was um, a fascinating project. It was a collaboration with ABC Radio where we asked the public to send us any questions at all on climate change. It could be, you know, any aspect of climate change whatsoever. Um, and then we put teams of scientists together to go to particular local regions in Tasmania and answer the most popular questions that they asked. So it was, you know, this big call out for what questions have you got? We got, I think, around 300 questions. We then divided the state into four regions, north, south, east, west, uh, and then we ran public events to, to answer the most popular 10 questions in each region. And I was really interested in trying that approach because normally scientists will, you know, book a seminar and we'll decide what we're going to tell the public about and then we go and, you know, have a science communication event on that. But this time we really wanted to flip that model and ask people what did they want to know. And of, I think effective 
communication needs to happen in both ways. You know, we need to know what the public are interested in and scientists may know things that are uh, important to communicate that the public doesn't know they don't know. So it's got to work in both directions. Um, but we really just wanted to see what questions people had. And the feedback that we got from that um, was that people really appreciated us asking the question of, so what is it that you want to know? And then really appreciated the opportunity to meet with the scientists doing that work and having one-on-one -on -one conversations and lots of time for question and answer. So at each of these four public events that we hosted, the Q&A, we planned for 30 minutes and it went for over an hour and a half. So people just wanted the opportunity to ask questions and have them answered. And then last year, we did a schools version. So this was led by a researcher at the University of Tasmania called Chloe Lucas. And we put the call out to school kids all around Tasmania, you know, go figure out in your classrooms what questions you've got. We had a thousand kids ask 200 and something questions, 300, 300 questions roughly. And then we got 57 different climate experts of all different kinds. So health researchers, legal people, oceanographers, um, ecologists, you name it. And they did written answers, side of the desk videos uh, and school visits. And again, that was just really phenomenally received. You know, school kids wanted to know what was going on. And that's an area that I feel really, really passionately about. So we are the first generation that are knowingly, willingly leaving kids with a much worse planet. And as you can see, that is something that really upsets me. So I feel that we really do need to offer them the opportunity to have agency and control and to, to get the information that they feel they need. Yeah. And I think that's You've touched on such important points. I think this project is going to be invaluable because if you want informed, ecologically aware citizens, we need to be communicating the science in a way that's relevant to them and like how this is actually going to affect them and their lives so they can understand the importance of it and move forward with that. And if you're also starting at the school level, by the time they've graduated, they're ready to go and take action. So I think this yeah. is just a fantastic project. Um, and you're also involved in a couple of others. I know we're on the clock today, but could you quickly mention RedMap for any, you know, citizen scientists out there that want to get involved yep. in PGCs? Yeah, so RedMap stands for the Range Extension Database and Mapping Project. And that started because we were aware that fishers and divers around the country, in particular off the east coast of Tasmania at the time, so this is uh, early 2000s, no, this is 2010, um, started to notice new species turning up. Um, and we just wanted to provide a place where we could um, have that information stored and recorded and, and valued. So fishers and divers are seeing heaps of things that we don't necessarily record. Um, and they know an awful lot about what's normal and what isn't in particular environments. So RedMap is about fishers and divers sending in photo observations of species that they spot in unusual locations. So it's the coral trout in Victoria or, or um, you know, the long spine sea urchin at the bottom of Tasmania, thing, things like that. 
and we then use that information as an early indication of what species are changing distribution. And so far, it's been really successful as well. So we've been able to, to use the information there in almost 30 different scientific publications to help us try and understand how these systems are changing. And it's been very successful with the communication as well. And again, we've, we've actually researched that communication side to see if it's something that people like um, contributing to, if there's benefits that the citizen scientists receive from contributing to these kinds of programs. And I think in general, citizen science is a way that people can just get involved and, and reconnect with, with nature. And it's the kind of thing that you can even do from your um, from your lounge chair. You know, there's there's programs where you can classify different uh, photographs that are submitted, and you can sit there on your iPhone and flick through and help people identify photos. So it's it's a kind of um, activity that you can do solo, you can do as a group, you can do in different environments. Um, yes, yeah, so I think it's it's something that that really it helps generate more information on how things are changing and, and also connects people more strongly to, to our natural systems. Right. Let's, let's get down to it. <clears throat> IPCC. Let's start with the absolute fundamental basics. What is the IPCC all about? What's its purpose? And what has it actually delivered so far, although that's a bit of a tricky question. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's start with the introduction to what IPCC is all okay. about. Okay. So IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's an international body representing 195 countries around the world, and it produces assessment reports on global ch climate change. So we're not doing new science. We're assessing all the information that's already out there. So these reports bring together the the you know, recently published scientific and technical literature, and they are intended to be policy relevant, but not policy prescriptive. So we're designed to assess all the information um, and arrive at you know, the stunning conclusion that emissions need to be rapidly reduced, but we're, it's not our job to say this particular policy, policy A is more important than policy B, or we're not we're not designed to sort of be policy prescriptive. They've done six uh, assessment reports since 1988 and a couple of special reports, but each major assessment report is composed of several parts. So there's the physical basis of climate change or working group one, and we had that um, report for assessment six, assessment report six released in August. Then the report that was, was released um, Monday and Tuesday this week, Working Group 2, that's Climate Change Impacts, Adaptation and Vulnerability. And then in a few months, there'll be the mitigation, or a few weeks actually, I think, the Mitigation of Climate Change Report, Working Group 3. And then a little bit of time after that, there's the Synthesis Report that comes out that, that you know, summarises all of that information. This is the... The report that's coming out now, Assessment Report 6, is the first report since 2014. And it really is a massive global assessment across all of those working group components of Assessment Report 6. There's around 700 um, lead authors 
and review editors from about 90 countries in the world. And it's an incredibly robust, onerous process. So I nominated to become part of IPCC because I just really wanted to understand how this mysterious beast worked. Even though I was a climate scientist with a lot of my work feeding into IPCC assessments, I really had no clue how it worked. Um, and I, because I do a lot of communication, I really wanted to be able to put my hand on my heart and say I knew what IPCC was and how it worked because I spent a lot of my time defending its, um, its outcomes and its findings. But to give you an idea of the scope and the scale and the, just the robust nature of this work, in the Working Group 1 report, the physical basis that came out in August, there's 234 different lead authors as part of that report. And there was over 78,000 different review comments that that team addressed. So they put out you know, multiple drafts, three or four versions of, of, of the report, and invite other scientists all around the world, other experts, um, government representatives, all sorts of different people. Anybody can register to, to comment on, on the draft reports. And so 78,000 different comments were made and they were all addressed and considered by this team. And that Working Group 1 report uh, assessed and cited over 14,000 different studies. So 14,000 different scientific teams from all parts of the world, um, you know, developing studies and, and um, look at, examining it at how, the, how the climate's changing. And then the Impacts and Adaptation and Vulnerability Report released on Monday, 270 lead authors, 62,000 review comments, and, and our report, that report assessed over 34,000 scientific studies. So that's a lot of different people from different parts of the world with different perspectives, different funding agencies. You know, it's an incredibly broad depth look at all sorts of things that are going on in terms of impacts and, and adaptation. And I think when people read about climate science or hear about, you know, the two sides and the debate, I think people just really don't understand that on one side, you've got literally tens of thousands of studies and tens of thousands of scientists. And on the other side, there's, you know, a handful of people making YouTube videos. So it's, it, it, you know, I don't, I don't think that comes across a lot of the time when, when people are scrolling on, on Facebook or Twitter and, and, you know, looking for or finding information on, on climate change. Yeah. So are you satisfied now? that you actually know how this massive beast yes, works. <laughs> I do. I do. I'm not it's, sure I'll do it again. It's, it's mind-boggling. <laughs> but is it is it fair to say that there is one possible theme through this journey, through the years, is that the increase in certainty on what's being reported? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, in fact, if you look at the reports over time, you know, the one that came out in 1990 said, yeah, this is, you know, a broad overview of climate science and we've got a discussion of the uncertainties and we look at the evidence of warming. And then 1995 was the balance of evidence suggests a discernible human influence on the climate. So, you know, mid-90s, discernible human influence. 2001, 
There is new and stronger evidence that most of the warming observed over the last 50 years is attributable to human activities. 2007 was warming of the climate system is unequivocal and that's human in, you know, induced. And then 2013, human influence on the climate system is clear. And then, you know, if you skip to, to this report that's just come out recently, it's, you know, global warming uh, of 1.1 degrees has already caused dangerous and widespread disruption in nature and affected the lives of billions of people despite efforts to adapt. And the cumulative scientific evidence is unequivocal. Climate change is a threat to human well-being and to health of the planet. And any further delay in concerted global action will miss a brief and rapidly closing window to secure a livable future. So the strength of that language uh, is, you know, a massive, massive jump compared to just seven years ago. I mean, I tuned in and watched the presser and I recall the UN Secretary General, I wrote it down, he was describing it as an atlas of human suffering and a frog march to destruction. So yeah, not, not, not painting a rosy picture. Um, but like, as you said, this was a huge report. There's 18 chapters, there's 3,675 pages worth of data here. So I know it's an incredibly difficult task to try and summarize that much data, but could you run us through some of those key findings that people need to be aware of? Yeah, so if we look at a global level, uh, about half of all plants and animals and, and you know, marine species that have been studied globally are moving polewards on, on land and to higher altitudes uh, to find conditions that they can survive in. So this is literally a massive redistribution of life on Earth. One of the, and that is my particular area of expertise actually, is this climate-driven redistribution of, of life. And one of the big challenges there is that not everything can shift all at the same time. Some things can move quickly, others can move very slowly. You have all the connections between species in terms of, you know, habitat and shelter and food and all those sorts of things being broken all at the same time and new links being formed. So it's, it's just really flipped ecology and ecosystems totally on its head. And some of those changes in distribution we might not notice at all. Other things though will have massive implications for livelihoods, for human health, you know, with diseases moving around. So that's a, a very big change to the, you know, I think of it as the ecological fabric of our planet. We have roughly half the world's population currently experiencing severe water scarcity at some point each year at least partly due to climate change. We know that increased warming heat waves and droughts are really hindering efforts to achieve those United Nations Sustainable Development Goals of zero hunger and everyone having water. Millions of people have been pushed into acute food and water shortages, particularly in Africa, Asia, um, Central and South America and small islands. We know that in every region of the world, climate change has really affected people's health. There's been, you know, periods of extreme heat uh, that have been uh, attributed to human-induced heat waves and, and, and caused, you know, mortality of, of, of people. And then there's, you know, if you look at all the extreme events happening in the world and Australia is unfortunately 
you know, really at the high end of exposure to those kinds of extreme events of floods and droughts and fire and marine heat waves and all those sorts of things, we know that not only do those events have a very massive toll in terms of infrastructure and our economy and all those sorts of things, but there's a lot of trauma associated with those heat waves and droughts and floods and storms, and that's really negatively impacting people's mental health. There's a big concern around the, you know, the, the extent of extreme events that we're seeing now, and, and again, Australia is an unfortunate example of that, means that the costs of, of responding to these events is so massive and the work required so extensive. And, and then these events are now happening one on top of each other. They're not just happening in isolation. They're happening one after the other or different kinds of extreme events happening at the same time. So we're seeing these cascading, compounding, aggregate kind of impacts and that it's really overwhelming our capacity to respond and to manage these things properly. And, and you know, you, you mentioned Australia, but New Zealand's the same. You know, we've, we've had our South Island West Coast hit by flooding, severe flooding three times in one year. And when yeah. you talk about the infrastructure impact, one bridge broken and broken, you've cut off access you know, yeah. to these isolated communities. So you talk about the stress on communities, mental health. We've covered this in other episodes. Um, there's health-related implications, you know, with heat waves and the dust and um, smoke, and there, there's a long list. diseases, the um, list goes on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A lot of diseases that come with it as well. So there are significant impacts. But a, a, an important component, because this paper is about a part of the title is adaptation. Yes. Yet what's um, also come out of this paper is that it's adaptation is becoming more difficult. Why is that? Well, I guess the as the impacts increase, it's it's leaving you know less funding for adaptation, and the the gap is growing. So that gap between uh, what we need to do and what we what we have the capacity to do is just really really um, escalating. So for for example. Um, well, I guess one of the things that we need to do is to try and invest more in disaster resilience, for example, rather than disaster recovery. So, for example, Australia spends around $2.75 billion a year on um, recovery from disasters, but we only spend $0.1 billion per year on trying to develop disaster resilience. And it, I think that's one of the things that complicates um, adaptation because we, we're being hit by these, or clobbered, I think the UN uh, actually referred to extreme events as, you know, we're being clobbered by these extreme events one after the other. So we have to do that disaster recovery, but at the same time, we need to be doing the, res you know, developing the, the resilience as well. So it's, it is very complex, but there is a lot that we can do. So, you know, looking at our governance framework, so trying to find 
you know, clear um, frameworks for coordinating across all levels of government in terms of, of adaptation, building capacity for adaptation through nationally consistent risk information, for example, and a lot of, um, I think, switching to dynamic decision-making. So at the moment, a lot of our decision-making is quite fixed and quite slow, but we need to ensure that we've got ethical and responsible but adaptive ways of, of making decisions in this new environment. Now, last year during the, um, as part of the, the, the six assessment report, uh, we spoke a little bit about the direct climate impacts in Australia and New Zealand. And really it's, it's more flooding more in certain areas, more heat waves in certain areas, more droughts, more, 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 more yeah. severe, more frequent and so on. But in the presentation that um, we dialed in earlier this week, um, there were a few other components that we don't touch on enough. So there was flooding, there was wildfires, we get it. The, the yeah. risk is there, it's more frequent, it's more severe and so on. But there were a few other important components, coral reefs, kelp systems, and species distribution. Those were three yeah. that are not spoken enough. Can you touch on a little bit about that? Because it's an ecosystem. Yeah. We're a part of it. And, you know, they're all we're all interconnected. And so we can't ignore certain facets and just be, let's just look after ourselves. So Yeah. So the the Great Barrier Reef, for example, in Australia is something that really pulls at my heartstrings because that is a massive um, future risk in terms of climate change. We've had three marine heat waves on the Great Barrier Reef. We've had 2016, 2017, 2020. Those heat waves mean that we get accumulated thermal stress. And that means that we have bleaching of coral. When we have bleaching of coral, uh, the zooxanthellae that, the, that live in the coral and provide them with energy get expelled from the coral. They then are bleached. If the thermal stress remains, um, the zooxanthellae don't come back. And that means the coral dies because it has no food. So that it's in a symbiotic relationship, you know, the coral and the, and the zooxanthellae. And so the coral dies if it stays hot and, and that um, can't come back. And we know that the, the bleaching has been occurring, you know, almost back to back for, for the last sort of five years, three events in, in, in five years. And the recovery of coral reefs following those disturbal event, disturbance events is really slow. So it takes at least 10 years minimum for the very slowest, a very fastest growing corals to recover. And that's, you know, obviously only partial recovery because there's lots of slow growing corals that can't recover in that time. And then to sort of make the situation even more gloomy, we know that recruitment of coral or, or production of new baby corals is much lower after bleaching events. So in 2018, after the 2017 bleaching, uh, the coral, coral recruitment or production of new coral was reduced to only 11% of that long-term average. So the, the story there is that dead coral doesn't make babies. So the capacity of the reef to replenish itself after these heat wave events is, is much slower. And unfortunately, we 
you know, based on, on um, global assessments, there's suggestions that um, bleaching conditions globally are projected to occur twice each decade from around 2035 under the high emissions scenario that we're pretty much, you know, travelling along at the moment. So if you've got bleaching twice each decade, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to to figure out that with a 10-year recovery time, that outlook for, for coral systems is, is not great. And those values that I mentioned applied to the Great Barrier Reef, but it's also a very high risk for our um, tropical reef systems in Western Australia as well. So it sounds like we're reaching those soft and hard limits for certain things in being able to actually adapt and, and, and save them, basically. Yeah, that loss of coral reefs and all the associated biodiversity and ecosystem service values, that was pretty much our headline key risk from the Australasian report. And we attributed that with a very high confidence, unfortunately. But then if you look to the southern coasts of Australia, where we have our kelp ecosystems, that was another one of the, the key risks identified for Australasia. And, you know, this applies to New Zealand as well where we're seeing on those southern and southeast coasts marine heat waves and warming and overgrazing by a lot of the new fish and, and urchins and other species that are moving into those regions as they warm up. So herbivores moving into, into new regions and literally eating the kelp out of house and home. And in, in Tasmania, for example, we've got less than 10% of our giant kelp remaining. And we've had, you know, massive range contractions of kelp species in Western Australia, where marine heat waves led to 100 kilometre range contraction of kelp forests there. And around Australia, it's around 140,000 hectares of kelp forests that have been lost due to extreme events and, and warming just in the last couple of decades, 140,000 hectares of, of habitat that's you know, incredibly important for a whole lot of other species. And if you look across the whole Australian coastline, and if you, you consider corals, kelps, seagrasses and mangroves, those organisms or those, those um, habitat forming organisms have been lost from around 45% of our coastline. So that's a very large proportion of these, you know, key species that other plants and animals need for shelter and food and all those sorts of things that have been lost uh, due to climatic events, extreme climatic events. So there's a lot to take in. That's why I went very quiet and I looked like I was glazed, but I was just, <laughs> it's just, there's a lot to comprehend because like I just mentioned, it's an ecosystem. Kelp is important to the, the health of our oceans. Yes. The oceans are hugely important in terms of sequestration of carbon. Um, there's a lot of reasons for it. But so this paper is about adaptation. The next paper that is due to be released is about mitigation. Yeah. Two very different things because one is, and, and look, and tell me I'm totally wrong in saying this, but adapting means we're conceding in the, in the fact that it's happening. So we just need to get on with it and adapt. Whereas mitigating is there much mitigation left? I mean, the trajectory we're on. So what is, fundamentally, what is the difference between the two in terms yeah. of our way forward? Okay. 
Yep. So mitigation is essentially not doing climate change. It's it's taking greenhouse gas emissions that are in the atmosphere out, but primarily not putting more in. So it's trying to reduce rapidly reduce our greenhouse gas emissions uh, and trying to you know suck more more carbon out of the atmosphere. That's mitigation. Adaptation is really trying to respond constructively to the changes that we are having from climate change. And it isn't a case of either or. We absolutely need to do both. If we don't adapt, every, you know, all our systems will be t totally overwhelmed and swamped and we won't have the capacity to mitigate. So we need to, we need to do mitigation and, and adaptation. Adaptation in some cases, in many cases, will buy us a bit more time for the mitigation to, to kick in. So we need to be doing both of those things at the same time. And a lot of things that we can do for um, adaptation, for example, kind of do both. So we can be looking at restoration of natural ecosystems. So mangroves and seagrasses and, and kelps, those species sequester or suck out carbon from the atmosphere. They also provide coastal protection from storm surges and things like that. So if we have large scale projects that are about reforestation on land and revegetation in our and, and um, you know conservation of our marine ecosystems that are giving us multiple bangs for buck in terms of protecting the coasts and and sequestering carbon and and really sort of helping make our marine systems more resilient that's great but it's not a permanent fix they're called nature-based solutions kind of don't like the word solutions because it's not a permanent solution or a permanent fix um, but it does buy us a little bit more time the danger i personally think with those kinds of um, solutions is that we can't take the pedal off the brakes in terms of um, emissions. We absolutely need to be um, decarbonising as fast as we can. We can't go, oh no, we'll just you know plant some more mangroves and then it doesn't matter if we're emitting. And then the, the, the other key point there is that yes, we can be planting more thermally resilient kelps, for example. Um, we can be planting more um, appropriate mangrove species, more resistant mangrove species in particular areas so that they're a little bit more resilient to the climate. However, they remain at great risk from extreme events and climate change. So we can't invest all our eggs in the restoration basket um, for climate purposes, because they could get wiped out by a big extreme event. Some extreme events are, you know, five and six degrees above normal. That's enough to wipe out um, large sections of, of, of um, you know, those kinds of species. So a lot of these adaptation and mitigation measures are largely driven by, you know, government or universities, NGOs, private enterprise, um, you know, a lot of these findings aren't exactly positive, so it's heavy for the individual to deal yeah. with. So, you know, what can I do? What can Ben do? What can the average person do to actually get involved and make a difference? 
Yeah, I think there's heaps of things that people can do. And I think it's important to know that doing stuff makes us feel better. So on one hand, you know, I, I think, you know, we're all only human and, and sometimes, you know, even I kind of think, oh, why am I bother hanging the washing out instead of using the dryer? Or why am I bothering mending these clothes or going to the op shop or whatever instead of just, you know, throwing my hands in the air and going, oh, it's all too hard. What difference can I make as an individual? We know even, you know, from psychological research that doing things makes us feel better. Being, you know, being constructive and working together with other like-minded people, these are all things that make us feel better. And even though we might feel like our efforts are only a little drop in the bucket, you know, eventually with enough drops in a bucket, bucket overflows. And, and so we all need to be trying to do what we can. We can be reducing our own footprint. I think talking about climate change is incredibly important, normalising those discussions of climate change rather than making it, you know, just something that that um, only left-wing radical people do. It's some, climate change is affecting everybody everywhere. It doesn't care who you vote for. It doesn't care what your political leaning is. It's going to affect, or it is affecting everybody. So we need to be expecting and demanding more of decision makers at all levels across all parties. One thing that I think, um, you know, we talked about earlier, participation in citizen science, again, we're helping gather information about how the world's changing and that helps everybody understand how we can um, maximise, uh, you know, the situation that we're in. Asking questions and getting answers from reputable sources, that's another thing that I think is, is very useful. People should be able to ask questions and not be made to feel silly or like, you know, their question isn't important or, or whatever. So finding ways that scientists can get better at trying to answer questions from, from the public. And I think most importantly, we can't give up. It's, although it's sometimes hard to feel hopeful, I think the important thing to remember is that every fraction of a degree of warming that we avoid really does improve the outcome. And that's what we've got to keep in mind, that it's not a we fix climate change or we don't, we adapt or we don't, or we mitigate or we don't. You know, everything that we do to adapt to climate change, everything that we do to not uh, put more emissions in the atmosphere, they're all leading to a better outcome than we would have otherwise. To circle back to a conversation right at the beginning and your work with Curious Climate, in 2020, you wrote a piece on how you feel about climate change. And you said that in general, you're not optimistic about uh, climate change, but quote, it's the ferocity of young people that gives you hope. Absolutely. And I have two of those at home. And yeah, pretty much I just want to be able to look my kids in the eye and say, I did everything that I could do to, to try and, and you know, help people understand what's happening and why it's important. And most climate scientists that I know, or, or, or rephrase it, everyone I've asked, 
every climate scientist I've asked that question, what gives you hope, or, or heard you know that asked in a in a in a um, seminar or something like that, they will all say the 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 tenacity, the the anger of young people, the you know just the energy that they have in terms of demanding a better future, the rights that they have for that. That's basically what keeps climate scientists going. Greta, thank you so, so much. We've got to wrap it up here. You're super busy. We've mentioned that at the start. We're so grateful for having you on the show as a guest. We've, we, we say this a lot now, communication in science is so key. You are just another exemplary example of that. Um, and even Tasmania seems to be a product of that. We have a lot of guests coming from that part of the world. But it's so important. The way you do communicate is, um, gosh, I've learned a hell of a lot, and I'm sure our listeners have. So it's, it's you take complex science and you make it understandable. And that's key. And um, another thing we mentioned a lot is grounded hope. And that's that's what you've given us as well. So Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for effectively a lesson um, and taking the time out of your busy schedule. And uh, yeah, thank you. No worries. Thank you very much. And thank you for all the work that you do in, in trying to help people understand these issues as well. Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends.